Mark chapter 15 and verse 16. And the soldiers led him, that is the Lord Jesus, away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one, Simon of Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. It is impossible for us to understand fully the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all experience pain to a degree and we may to an extent as we read these passages imagine or sense a little of the pain of the physical abuse that the Lord Jesus endured. What Christ suffered, even physically, is much more than any of us will ever have to endure. But that was only the beginning of the Lord's sufferings. The Lord was also prey to Satan and to his uh, demonic horde. Satan tempted and troubled the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ and assaulted his spirit to the very end. And we could hear those cries and mockeries and those temptations being levied at Christ in this passage and in other passages in the parallel sections of the Gospels. These were serious trials that the Lord endured. Nevertheless, by bearing our sin and suffering in his soul under the intense, fiery wrath of God and all the judgment of the law, our Saviour uniquely endured eternal punishment, separation and forsaking by his Father. So that in body, mind, soul and spirit. Our Saviour suffered like no other 
ever did. Jeremiah could write prophetically, Behold, take note, give attention to this fact. See if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Well, we have been following the uh, life of the Lord Jesus Christ through his ministry for some months now in this little Gospel of Mark. In the past uh, few months, we've spent a lot of time in the Saviour's final week. And here we come now to the uh, Friday upon which the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified. This is that day of fierce anger which Jeremiah spoke and prophesied of. And may it ever hold us with a sense of awe and wonder. We may not be able to explain all the Lord endured in the suffering with which he was afflicted. But it is clear that God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit would have us return to contemplate and meditate on the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ often. That we might remember both what our salvation cost and what Christ's death accomplished for us. Every detail that is recorded in the four Gospels, previewed in the prophets and later mentioned by the apostles, deserves our careful attention. We who are the people of God should dwell much on these scriptures. For they open to our eyes and ears and understanding when we approach them with faith and with a prayerful heart the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that his love secured for us. Nothing documented here by the Holy Spirit is without deep significance and great spiritual meaning. And a believer feeds upon the circumstances of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for the comfort of our soul and the strengthening of our spirit in our own life's journey. Sure, there was a blessedness in getting manna given from heaven, but it was to the eyes and ears and hearts and spiritual understanding of the Lord's faithful people amongst the children of Israel that the true significance of the manna was understood, for it pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ as the bread of life. And at the cross we see something of that spiritual dimension being worked out before us. Many might say, oh, how much Christ suffered. But when we enter into that suffering as being for me, 
and understand the significance of what he endured, how comforting it is for a people, a sinful people like you and like me. Many think that the Christian faith is strange and complicated, a bloody business. It is not at all. If we understand what took place on the cross and what the sacrifice of the Saviour entailed, what he secured in this suffering, then we are well on our way to knowing the gospel of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So today what I want to do is to dwell briefly on a few of these details that are highlighted in this little passage in these final few hours before the Lord's crucifixion and glean what we can from the details that Mark leaves with us. I want to think about the crown of thorns, representative of the kingly garb with which the Lord was dressed by these mocking soldiers. I want to think about the burden of the cross that he carried. And I want just to touch upon as well the wine that was mingled with myrrh. So let us uh, begin at the beginning and think about the crown of thorns. It wasn't only the Lord's disciples who cherished notions of Christ establishing a kingdom on earth. The disciples did even now. Even now we are going to hear in the coming days how these disciples were still mulling over in their minds how it was that this earthly kingdom slipped from between their fingers. But it wasn't just the disciples. It was the Jewish people in their entirety. They were looking for the return of David's kingdom. And the Romans were well aware of this Jewish hope of a return of grand days, military power, political significance once again. And you'll remember how Pilate, in addressing the Jews with respect to Christ's innocence, had offered to release to them Jesus called the King of the Jews. So even Pilate was aware of uh, this royal name and this this uh, kingdom aspiration that the people had. So that when Pilate's soldiers were given opportunity to harass the Lord Jesus Christ, his kingly office, his kingly reputation was high in their minds. And this is something that uh, is 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 very important for us to notice, I think. This is an example of how the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled by the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ quite unintentionally as they act out their own sinful desires only 
for us to realise upon reflection that they were fulfilling exactly what had been foreseen many years ago. For example, to seal the fate of Christ, to ensure that he was crucified by Pilate, the Jews cried out, we have no king but Caesar. Now that was a throwaway comment. It was designed to to, uh, cause Pilate uh, to be concerned that news of this incident might get back with this construction to Rome and he could be in trouble. But in saying that, the Jews actually were speaking the truth. They had lost all of their kingly rule. It had gone from them. And thereby they were fulfilling Jacob's prophecy from Genesis. The book of Genesis chapter 49 where it says the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh which is Christ should come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now here if they had had eyes to see they would realise that Christ had come because the very Romans were in their capital city. They had lost that rule. They were a dominated and a suppressed people. And it was now, right now, that they should have been looking for Shiloh. It was now that they should have been looking and expecting the Messiah to come. So much for the Jews fulfilling Jacob's prophecy of so many years ago by their words to Pilate. At the exact same moment as the Jews were declaring themselves to be without a king but Caesar, what was happening in the other room but that the Roman soldiers were worshipping and bowing down and saluting Christ, albeit in jest, as the king of the Jews. With the very words, Hail, King of the Jews thereby fulfilling David's prophecy from Psalm chapter 2 or Psalm 2 verses 2 and 6 the kings of the earth Pilate and Herod set themselves the rulers the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed yet says verse 6 Have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion? And Zion was the place where the Lord Jesus Christ was standing at that very moment. And so here we see the prophecies being fulfilled. Despite the waywardness and the wickedness and the opposition of the enemies of Christ. So these Romans, they made a crown of thorns for the Lord Jesus. They dressed him in a purple robe. They placed a mock scepter in his hands. The robe was probably an officer's old cloak. The scepter was a reed. 
And I think it's very, very interesting that someone had the idea and took the time and went to the trouble of crafting a crown of thorns. Even assuming that they could find thorn trees readily available in the centre of Jerusalem. What a lot of trouble somebody went to in order to make a crown, albeit a crown of thorns, for the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of these trappings were intended to mock Christ's royal title, but they spoke too of the death of Christ, the death that Christ was about to die. And we can see symbolically in the actions of these Roman soldiers pointers to the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ's death in the garb in which he was adorned. The crown of thorns is a picture of the sins of Christ's people encompassing him, surrounding him and hedging him about. Our sins were like thorns upon Christ's body, hurtful and wounding to him. And here we see an interesting parallel drawn from the early chapters of the book of Genesis and that first Adam and the restorative work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. The first man and the last man. Here we see the Lord Jesus Christ taking away the curse that had come upon the earth at the fall of Adam. When Adam fell, God cursed the earth for Adam's sake. And that curse manifested itself in the production of thorns. And that thorny curse remained until the Lord Jesus Christ took that curse, those thorns, on himself for us. So that for us there is a curse no more. For those who are in Christ, for those who have faith in Christ, there is no condemnation. No more for the Lord's elect. And there never will be again. And that's why there will be no thorns in the new earth. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has taken away God's curse against all our sin. Christ has paid for it, bled for it, and died and carried that curse away for us. There was a crown of thorns. And Mark tells us that there was a robe placed upon the Lord Jesus. Mark calls it a purple robe. And Matthew says that it was scarlet. Well, perhaps there were two robes. And maybe it was just the colour in the eye of the beholder. Either way, this robe speaks to us of the Lord Jesus Christ being covered with the scarlet sins of his people. Carrying their guilt. Being bruised like that purple colour that the bruise comes up. Being bruised under the rod of 
God's justice. And the large view of this robe that covered our Lord is that here in his vicarious death, for all for whom he died, our sins were laid on him. He took our transgressions, our iniquity, our shortcomings, our sin, our failures, our rebellions, our unbelief, the guilt of every Godward offence, and he carried it all on his shoulders like a cloak draped over him, so that our iniquities covered him from head to toe. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, may this view of Christ covered with our sins give us comfort. We are free from all our sin. We are free from all our guilt. We are free from all our condemnation because Christ has taken all our sin and guilt and condemnation to himself. So that when Satan comes to us and accuses us, we may point to the scarlet robe of Christ and see all our sins woven into its fabric and placed on the shoulders of our substitute. There was a crown of thorns, there was a robe of purple, and there was a scepter placed in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. A symbol of power is a scepter. And in Christ's hand, it is the power to provide and protect his people. Christ's power, that scepter, speaks of Christ providing for and protecting his people because that's what he went to the cross to do, to provide and to protect his people. Provide for and protect his people. They gave Christ a reed. A reed. And you know what? I'm going to say something here which, which probably you've never thought about. But Christ took it. Christ took it. He held it. He held this reed. He, he, he didn't refuse it. He didn't cast it on the ground. He didn't throw it away. He took that reed into his hand. I wonder why he did that. I wonder why he, he held it as they were mocking him in, uh, in this dress. I think that shows us how tenderly the Lord Jesus Christ holds and carries the weakest, neediest, poorest, and most fragile of his little lambs. The neediest amongst us. You remember what the Lord, uh, or was said of the Lord in, in Matthew 12, verse 20, a bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment in unto victory and that sending forth of judgment unto victory was what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing on the cross 
and he held that bruised reed in his hand. He wouldn't break us off. He wouldn't let us go because he was going all the way to the cross for us. Even in the Lord's own weakness, even in his suffering and in his death, he never let go of those whom he came to seek and to save. He saw you and he saw me. He saw all his chosen bride for whom he came. He saw those that he loved, those for whom he bled. All that were committed to him, given to him in that covenant of peace and grace. All for whom his soul was in travail. And he held us firm. He did then. And he will now. And that scepter, remember the scepter that Ahasuerus held in his hand when Esther went before him to the throne? That scepter that Christ holds is extended to his people in their need to approach him and find that grace that we require and that forgiveness of sins that we need. May we have grace to go to the Lord in time of need and may we find him to be God, our provider. The soldiers bowed their knee in mockery to a king. Little did they know. Christ was even then, at the moment they were bowing their knees in front of this made-up king, Christ was then on his throne valiantly going to war against the enemies of his kingdom, meeting head on the foes who came to threaten his people, laying waste to them all. And someday these men, with Pilate and Herod and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin and all the Jews and all the powers of this world, will bow before the king upon his throne of glory. And the whole world will see the Lord Jesus Christ as he truly is. I am a great king, saith the Lord of hosts, and my name is dreadful amongst the heathen. And these men mocked the Lord, and yet he was that great king. I'm reminded of... Um, that moment just a few hours before um, when the Lord was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and Peter drew his sword and, 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 and the, the, the Lord says to, to, to Peter, Peter, put it away. Put your sword away. Do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? And these men slapped Christ in the face and they hit him, they hit him with, 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 with this reed, this scepter, this cane, whatever it was. They spat on his face. And the Lord Jesus Christ endured it all because he knew that the scriptures must be fulfilled and that our salvation must be accomplished. Let me also mention something about the burden of Christ's cross because 
this is this is interesting and, and and there's much that we could say about the burden of the cross and the Lord's own soul but I want to think about what Mark refers to here with the respect to uh, Simon a, a man of the city of Cyrene Simon was called upon to carry the Lord's cross and it appears from Luke's account, the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, that Simon may well have been compelled to bear the weight of the Lord's cross at the back of it. Now, it depends on how you interpret this. Um, but, but Luke says these words, that they laid on him, or on him, they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Now it may be that Jesus walked on ahead and that Simon carried the cross by himself. But I think the other way of looking at that is that the Lord carried the front of the cross and Simon carried the back of the cross. And so in that picture, they both walked together. Jesus at the front and Simon at the back. And two things strike me here with respect to, to Simon of Cyrene. Uh, first is this, that Simon was compelled to do it. Simon was compelled by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross of Christ. No one takes up Christ's cross to follow him without first being compelled to do so. It's not in our nature to do so. It's not in our will to do so. It's not in our heart to do so. But when God the Holy Spirit compels a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to follow Christ, to trust in Christ, to put our faith in Christ. He makes us willing in the day of his power and we take up our cross gladly and follow Christ. And that's conversion. It becomes where it was not our nature or our will or in our heart to do so before. It becomes our nature and our will and our heart desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and as it were, to bear his burden in this world. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And the second thing about Simon of Cyrene and, and, and bearing Christ's cross is this, that here the Lord graciously teaches us that while Christ had to die alone to bear the sin of his people. Yet he calls his church to follow him to the place of sacrifice, to join in the cause for which he suffered, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And as it were to engage in this great work of the manifestation of the gospel in our lives. As Christ now reigns in his kingdom and his people are gathered unto him. Now I'm going to make a supposition here. 
and I, I, I believe that it is uh, uh, supportable, but it is not explicitly stated in Scripture. I believe that Simon of Cyrene was probably a believer. If not at that moment when he was compelled to carry the cross of Christ, which is perhaps why he was right there at the very front of the, of the crowd, uh, looking on at, at, at his master being led to his crucifixion. But be that as it may, I think he was probably a believer shortly afterwards. And there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons for saying that, not least of which we're told here in Mark that Alexander and Rufus, his two sons, uh, uh, were uh, men who, who were uh, leading uh, lights in the apostolic church. So perhaps they were led to a knowledge of the Lord by their father. Who knows? But Simon walked with Christ to Calvary. And I believe he saw his sins nailed to the cross in the person of his Saviour there. And if we would be saved, we must follow Christ to Calvary. And there we will understand all that he has done. That is why even in our communion we are encouraged to remember the Lord's death until he comes. And I want to mention the wine that was mingled with myrrh. These are just little glimpses that I'm taking from this passage today just to, to perhaps open some of the, the, the depth that there is in these verses for the believer to meditate upon. This wine mingled with myrrh was a drink that was given to condemned prisoners before their crucifixion to help numb their senses and ease their suffering. It was reckoned to be an act of mercy supplied by the friends of the condemned person who was soon to die. And it may well be that, that some of the friends of the Lord tried to give him this potion to ease his pain as he was standing there at the, 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 the place of crucifixion. Maybe it was some of the women around the cross. But either the Lord rejected it, knowing what its purpose was to, 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 to stupefy his mind and ease his suffering, choosing rather to stay alert or else maybe it was withheld from him and he never received it. So that received is that it was never given to him by the Roman soldiers that were there. Either way, it shows that the Lord's mind was not intoxicated, nor his senses dulled by this concoction of wine and myrrh. Our Saviour was lucid, he was alert, and he suffered all that he had to endure without any mitigating of his pain. And just a final word about the Saviour being stripped of his garments and these being divided amongst his executioners. This dividing of uh, the clothes of the prisoners was just... Uh, 
an occupational benefit of, of, of the executioner. They got the prisoner's clothes. But the dividing of Christ's clothes and the gambling on his vesture was itself a direct fulfillment of David's prophecy in Psalm 22 verse 18. And it proves the authority and veracity and the trustworthiness of the word of God when we see exactly what was foretold being uh, shown to us here uh, in, in this incident at Golgotha. Our Saviour, in his love for us, gave his all for the life of his people, even his clothes as he was crucified naked. And being naked amplified his shame as our sin bearer. But there's another thought in that too. The soldiers divided Jesus' clothes and that dividing of the things of Christ still goes on today. Some people have this part of the Lord Jesus and some have another part of the Lord Jesus. Some speak of Christ's love without any reference to Christ's holiness. Some speak of forgiveness without reference to justice. For some Christianity is about good works and people's best efforts without seeking Christ and his righteousness. But we cannot have a divided Christ. He must be a whole Christ to be a whole saviour. He must be a complete Christ for a complete sinner. A full Christ for full redemption. The Saviour's coat was without seam. It was woven from the top throughout. And our Saviour's righteousness is a complete covering for our nakedness. It is a suitable wedding garment in which to enter the presence of our holy God. It is a finished product with no need to be altered or added to or subtracted from or tampered with in any way by man. And our Saviour was crucified outside the city gate at about nine o'clock in the morning. It's been a long night and there are still six hours of suffering to go before the Lord Jesus Christ's work is complete. But the writer to the Hebrews tells us, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. And then he continues, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. How blessed we are to be able by grace to go outside the camp with our Saviour. It does not matter that we bear the same reproach that he bore in doing so. Outside of the camp of man-made religion, it is our privilege to stand with Christ. To stand by grace in the finished work of the cross. To stand in the comfort of redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. To stand forgiven 
by the mercy of God to stand in the liberty with which Christ has made us free and to stand complete in the salvation and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Amen.